Thanks, brother. Yeah, man. All right. That was fun. You don't always get to do that. Have your whole family up here. Uh, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 15 this morning. Galatians 3, uh, starting at 15, as we continue in our series, Galatians, No Other Gospel. And so, uh, as you're turning there, I want to draw us back to those of us that grew up in church. Uh, you're probably going to know this song. We sang it in our children's ministry. Uh, if you didn't grow up in church and you like come to the faith later in life, this might be a moment where you're actually thankful for that. Uh, because of what we, what we learned in this moment. Uh, but there was a song that I sung in children's church, and my dad led the children's church, so it was like extra embarrassing that he led us in these motions. But who remembers the song, Father Abraham? Anybody? Father Abraham? Nope, only a handful. Okay, then we're going to introduce everybody else. All right, so sing along with me, everybody that does know it. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm. And you start doing these weird motions that like have nothing to do with the song, like nothing. So we just say that refrain over and over as you involve your right arm, then your left arm, and you're like doing this, and then your right foot, left foot. And if we were doing this outside like this and people drove by, they'd be like, look at that young child army that the church is raising up to destroy us. This is kind of weird looking. And then if they drove back by later, we were doing this motion, head up, head down. And I'm getting so close to one to like just fall straight into this baptism. But the whole point of that song at the end was to turn around, sit down, and we all fell out. And I was in a Baptist church, and that was the closest we got to being slain in the spirit, I think, <laughs> was in that song, in that moment, Father Abraham, and we we're just out of control. You were trying to see how many of your friends you could hit. I mean, it was a wild moment, but even in that weird song of motions, there was a spiritual truth, and it's true. I'm a son of Abraham, and so are you. But even as a kid and a young kid singing the song, I knew one thing to be true. I'm not Jewish. I am a Gentile. So how can I possibly be a son of Abraham? And today we're going to get to see that reality in the scriptures. How can we Gentiles be sons of Abraham. And so let's read Genesis 3, 15 through 25, and then we'll uh, talk about it. To give a human example, brothers, even with the man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not nullify a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For the inheritance comes, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So then a natural question arises, and Paul is anticipating where the readers and the hearers of this letter were going to go. Why the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels and an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Another anticipation of a question. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed come by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. 
Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This is the word of the Lord, to which we say, thanks be to God. So as we look at this passage, there's three things that are going to emerge. Uh, One, the first thing that's in verses 15 through 18, the law does not cancel or nullify the promise, and that promise is ultimately the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number two, then why the law? Simple answer, just like Paul has it in 19, because of our sin, because of our transgression. And the third thing, the law is not against the promised gospel. The law actually points us and drives us to the gospel. So those are the three things we're going to see this morning. So if we look at verses 15 through 18, you know, Paul starts with a human example and says, hey, even if you make a covenant with somebody else and y'all agree to it, uh, that you can't change it or add to it once it's been ratified. And so he says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and he really draws our attention to the singular nature of this offspring. And so what Paul is going to build up and say is, hey, The law coming in 430 years after this promise does not nullify the promise. What we've got to realize in Scripture is this. Going all the way back to Genesis, God is revealing to us who he is and what he wants to do to save us. So the whole biblical story is a picture of who our God is and the links that he would go to rescue, reconcile, and redeem us. That's the story of Scripture. That God is coming after us, and how is he doing that? We see in the very beginning of Genesis that he makes all things. He's the God of heaven and earth, and he speaks everything into existence. Uh, Ex nihilo is what they say in the Greek, straight out. And so there's our God. He's a God of creation. He's a God of power, might, and majesty. And he creates Adam and Eve in his image, and he puts them in the garden. And their whole job is to image God, to be image bearers, to take the goodness of the garden and, what, and relationship with God and the job that he gave them and spread it all over the earth. So the garden wasn't just supposed to be in one place. It was supposed to, they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply and that this garden would eventually take over all of creation and we would all experience the goodness of God. Now, he gives them one rule, one law to follow. That you are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Adam and Eve, tempted by the serpent, see that it's good for food, that it's to make them wise to be like God. And so they have one rule, broke it, and then sin and brokenness and death enter the world. And so when we see in Genesis 3, when God is pronouncing judgment on their sin, he puts the seed of hope of the gospel. That in Genesis 3.15, there is this promise that one singular offspring will come from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent forever. If we go and read Romans 16, 19, and 20, Paul says that that's Jesus Christ. That that promised hope that when sin entered the world and they broke God's good rule and they were put outside the garden, out of God's presence, that God put a promise within their condemnation that he would save them. And that he was going to save them through this offspring So then we fast forward to Abraham, and Michael talked about this last week in Genesis 15, that he has a promised offspring, and so that God is going to bless Abraham and Sarah with a child, and that through them, all the nations of the world would be blessed. 
And here's the thing. He takes him outside the tent and he says, look, Abram, look, Abraham, look at these stars of the sky. This is as many as your descendants are going to be. Well, if you look at Israel, it's a small nation. How is this going to be reality? How are you going to have this many offspring? Well, the hope is this, that Isaac would come. And then Isaac would have Esau, and you have Jacob, and then Jacob becomes Israel, and then we have the 12 tribes of Israel, and we have, his, have the people of God. But that the promised son to Abraham, Isaac, was just a foreshadowing to the promised coming of God's own son. That God's son is going to be the one who brings all things together, that he is going to be the fulfillment of all the promises of God wrapped up in one, and that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the covenant promises of the scriptures. And so Paul's arguing that right here, that he's saying that the reason that we can be sons and daughters of Abraham is because we are in Christ. And that Christ is this promised offspring that we would all come together through him, that all the promises of God are found in Jesus Christ. And so if we are in him, then we are grafted into the people of God as Gentiles. We are grafted into God's story through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, is the ultimate fulfillment of all of Scripture. And that all the stories, all the characters, all the people are pointing and foreshadowing to Jesus. So then, what about the law? We need to realize, look, in, in Genesis... Even when they broke the law, there was that seed of the hope of the gospel. And then we see that hope and foreshadowing through all the covenants of God. And we see that that means the gospel of grace comes before the law. So even when he gives them the law in Exodus, we, we fly past the first two verses of Exodus 20 to get to the Ten Commandments to make sure that we do them and don't break them. And that's good. We want to do them and we should not break them. But the reality is we will. So what's our motivation to keep the law? He tells his people right here at the very beginning of Exodus in 20, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 2. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then he goes into the Ten Commandments. So why is he saying that before the Ten Commandments? He's wanting to remind them of who he is and what he's done for them already. Did he give them the law in Egypt and say, hey, if you keep these Ten Commandments, I'll get you out of this place. Hey, if you keep these Ten Commandments, I'll deliver you from Egypt and make you my people. No, he does it beforehand by grace. He does it because this is who God is. And he says, this is why you want to keep these laws, because I'm your God who is good, who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is why you would keep these rules, because I love you, because I've already delivered you, because you're already my people. Now keep the law. And so a lot of people miss this. We miss this. They miss this. And they think they start turning the law into something that it's not supposed to be. They start turning the law into a means of salvation. That if they could just keep the rules and do the right thing or do this and do that, then they're good with God. But they are getting it backwards. That we're to trust in who God is and his promises for salvation. Then we live the way that he's called us to live. So he goes into uh, then why the law, if it's all about the promises and it's all about what Christ has done for us, then how does the law, why did it even come in the first place? So in verses 19 through 20, he says this, simply it was added because of our transgressions. It was added because of our sinfulness. 
And so we have laws, right? We can understand this. There's laws out on the road. We don't you know, obey them a ton, but there's this one that's white and black, and it says speed limit, and it has the speed limits, and we're like, oh, that's just a suggestion. I know these dudes are going to give me five to seven over. I'm just going to take advantage of that. And if we're cruising in here to Chelsea Park, we see the fake cop parked out there, and we're like, I think I'm going to drive faster just because that's not even real. And so if you're like me, you can tell which side. I, I lean to being a lawbreaker, not necessarily a keeper. And so that's just a, a default in, in my working. But uh, these are suggested things that are supposed to curb us from actually doing them. That if we have these laws and rules out there, it'll curb us our sinfulness to where we don't do them, right? And so the civil law, that's how it works. But God's law works even more differently than that. Because when I grew up, they told me, hey, God's law is to help you not sin. But that's not completely true. And it said that they added it because of the transgressions. That the law was given because we were sinful. Then what is the point of the law? Paul will say this in Romans 7. Uh, verses 7 through 13, he really breaks down what the law is for, what it does with our sinfulness. And verse 7 of Romans 7 says this, uh, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but then the commandment came in and sin came alive and I died. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. For sin, seasoning opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Here's the deal. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So the problem isn't with the law. The problem isn't with who God is and how he calls us to live. He says this, did that, which then would, uh, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So there's a provocative part of the spiritual law of God where it provokes us, it angers us, it tells us don't do this, but then the sin inside of us sees the law and it says don't do it, and the sin inside of us, the flesh, what does it say? Oh, I definitely want to do what it tells me not to do. Like right now, for example, if I said no one can get up and go to the bathroom for the rest of the service, this is the law. You immediately are like, oh no, I didn't think I had to go to the bathroom. Now I got to go to the bathroom. My son just did it. Holy cow, this is amazing. The timing and the comedic nature of that is unbelievable. Okay, example, and he, he like his dad, does not fall far from the tree and is a lawbreaker. Anyways, uh, but if I told you right now, you can't go back to the coffee bar and get any more coffee. All of a sudden you're like, I don't think I've had enough coffee this morning. This is the very thing I want to do. That's what God's law does it tells us who God is and that he's holy and he's good and this is the way we should live. And then it presses in on us and what oozes out of us is our sinfulness. As it presses in on us, it shows us that we can't keep it. As it presses in on us, it says, you can't do it. And you know what we love to hear in our lives, just like, I'm sure you're just like me, I love to hear this. You can't do it. You can't save yourself. The whole point of the law is God is holy and he is awesome and this way he's called us to live. And as it presses in on me, it shows me that I can't do it and that I'm a sinful human being. 
And so if I appeal to the law to save me, I'm toast. I mean, just out the window, gone. I'm done. That's what Paul's saying in this passage. He says that the law was given and it was a good thing, but what it showed is inside of me are sinfulness that needs to be dealt with and that the commandment presses in and makes me actually worse than I was before. It takes a worse situation and makes it even more dire. But the amazing thing is you and I can convince ourselves, oh yeah, like I'm not that bad. I'm pretty good. I can keep this law and that law, and then we just start to make a little list of laws that we can keep, because at least we can keep these. And if I can keep these, then I'm good with God. But if we remember back to earlier in Galatians, he said, if you keep, keep one part of the law, you've got to keep the whole thing. Not just the, your little pet things you know you can keep and that you judge your righteousness on and that you judge others against. Nope, that's not going to save you. That's not going to work. You're actually using the law at that point for the wrong reasons. So the law comes in and shows us that we are sinful beyond all measure and that we need someone outside of us to save us. We need someone to come and perfectly fulfill the law for us. In our definition of the gospel, we say the gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, right? So we start with his life. Why did Jesus have to come as a baby? Why did Jesus have to come and put on flesh and blood? He came to be the perfect law keeper. Go read Matthew 1 through 4 this week. And all you see Jesus do is everywhere that Israel failed, Jesus takes up that failure and fulfills it. He just shows them time and time again, you can't do it, but I can. I came to live the perfect life, be the perfect law keeper, fulfill all the righteousness of God. And then he goes to the cross for us. And through his death on the cross, he takes our sin on us. Not figuratively, literally becomes sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that through his life, his death, and his resurrection, that we would turn from our sins and believe in him, we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be saved, that our sins might be forgiven, that our imperfect law-keeping is swept away and we're given Christ's record and his righteousness, and we're not just forgiven and now we're good, like you and God, like, hey, you're forgiven, now you're good, we're good here. Now he goes further and says, your bank account is full. My righteousness has been given to you and my grace has been given to you and it will never run out. That's what we get in the gospel. So how does the law work with the gospel? The law is not against the gospel. The law drives us to the gospel. It points to our need for the gospel. And look at verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promised faith and Jesus Christ might come to those who believe. So the law imprisoned all of us under sin, showing us our sinfulness, pressing in in such a way that we would turn to God and throw ourselves on his mercy and grace. That we might say, I can't live the way that God's called me to live. He's perfect and holy and righteous and I'm not. And I need a savior. I need somebody outside of me to live the perfect life, die a sacrificial death, to be raised, and right now he's ruling and reigning, and we can place our trust in him. So the law points to our need for the gospel, and then we believe. And so today, we preach both law and gospel. We need the law. Remember what he said back in Romans 7. The law is holy and righteous and good. So when we preach the law, it should press in on us in such a way to say, you know what, I thought I was doing it pretty well, but man, I fall short 
of the glory of God. Man, I left a few laws out, just kept in the ones I could keep. Oh man, the law is pressing in on me right now and I'm convicted. I need to throw myself on the gospel of grace. Then there's others of us that already know we're not good. We walk into this place dejected, knowing our sinful hearts and wondering if there's a way that God could forgive us, if there's a way that God could save us. And we need to hear the gospel. We need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection on your behalf. That his work is perfect and there's nothing you can add to it. And that if you're wondering if you're too far from God or you've done too much or he can't possibly accept you, he does. He's made a way for you by his life, death, and resurrection on the cross. And he wants you to come to him with your brokenness, your sinfulness, that you can experience grace and forgiveness and salvation through what he's done for you, not how well you can keep his law. So we want to preach law and we want to preach gospel, but we got to know how they work together. That the law doesn't bring salvation, it just points us to our need, and that need has been fully met in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is something I did not understand growing up in the church as a youth. I, I, I grew up in church and believed in Jesus at the early age of seven, was baptized by my grandfather on Christmas Day. It's a great uh, memory that I have of him and us and, and, and Jesus working in my life. And so at seven years old, as much as a seven-year-old can believe, I believed that Jesus lived the life that I could not, that he died in my place, and that I am turning to him, asking him to forgive me of my sins and to, to enter into my life and give me the Holy Spirit, and he saved me. And then baptism was a symbol of that, and we'll get to see it today. But then, once I got in the faith through the gospel, this side in my sanctification, uh, it's all about the law. The church that I grew up in did not tell me that the grace that saved me is the grace that sustained me. What they said is, Jesus saves you. Now, here's all the rules you got to do to stay in Jesus' good graces. So I started using the law in a way that it was not designed to be kept. I started using it to say, okay, all right, Jesus saved me. I need to prove that I was a good pick, to prove I was a, a, a good part of the team. And so I'm going to do all these rules, all these Christian things. And I wasn't doing them because God saved me. I wasn't doing it out of acceptance. I wasn't doing it because I was loved. I was doing it to earn love. I was doing it to add to the merit of Christ. I was doing these laws to keep myself in God's good graces. And you know what that law keeping did to me in my early spiritual life as a middle school and high school student? It crushed me. And it crushed me so hard that it drove me away from the faith. And that when I was in late high school and early college... I just came over and started, okay, what does the world have to offer? I didn't find life in religion, so now I'll just go the way of the world. And so as much as you can in your early high school and college years, you can imagine what those things might be that you pursue and the world tells you to. And I did that at a place called Old Miss. And I think that that place especially is even harder. <laughs> You've got to have your head on pretty straight there. There's a hard party scene there. But I was pursuing all that the world had to offer. And guess what? Empty. Empty. Just as empty as the religious works I were doing to earn and keep myself in God's good graces. Now I was going over here and said, well, what does the world have to offer? And I was experiencing all the world had to offer in same emptiness. Same emptiness. So I found myself failing out of school, driving back to uh, campus after Thanksgiving break with my family, and I'm having a little conversation with God. Like, God, I'm not happy. 
but I wasn't happy in the church and I wasn't happy in the world. Where's life to be found? And I walked into my dorm room and the Holy Spirit hit me. The presence of God in a very palpable way drove me to my knees and I wept for my life. And I said, God, if you're real, will you save me? Will you show me life? And he said, I will. Come back to what you know to be true. What did I know to be true in that moment? The faith that I had as a seven-year-old kid. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation. It's sufficient for my sanctification. And it's sufficient for one day bringing me home before the Lord in my glorification. That's what I found in that moment was the grace of God that I had missed growing up in the church because I was trying to use the law in a way that was not meant to be used. So it leads you to a natural question, doesn't it? What does the law have to do in the life of the Christian today? Well, one, it can convict us of sin and drive us to the Savior. I just talked about that. But now, because we are in Christ, because we are in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he has saved us, and he puts his spirit inside of us, now through the spirit applying the gospel to my life, I can now live the way that God's calling me to live. I can now pursue the things that God lays out in his law and his teaching and how he calls us to live, and I can do them not to earn my salvation, but because I'm already saved. I'm not working for God's acceptance through pursuing who he calls me to be. I'm working from acceptance. I'm not living the way that God wants me to to earn his love anymore. I already have it, I already have it in measure and can never out, outdo God's love. And in that place, let me tell you, there's freedom. There's freedom in that place where the shackles of the law start to come off. There's freedom in that place where the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't just become an entrance into the faith, but the very faith itself that we grow deeper and deeper into as we experience more and more of his love and forgiveness as the Holy Spirit applies that to our heart and he changes us. Believing in the gospel and that I'm free in Christ doesn't lead me to do whatever I want to do. It actually leads me to the things that he wants me to do. I was trying to do it by the law and it wasn't working because that's not what it's meant for. Now, the life we live, we live in the spirit and that the spirit of God is applying this gospel to me in such a way that it transforms me. It transforms my motivations. It transforms my actions, my attitudes, how I live. However imperfectly, we still do that. And when we fail, we don't try to clean ourselves up and come back to God. We just run straight back to him, knowing he's going to receive us with his love and his grace and his forgiveness to transform us. And so that's how the law and the gospel work together. And today we get to celebrate the beautiful gospel at the table together. If you're serving communion, you want to go ahead and come down to the tables here with us. Uh, we get a chance to look at Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the fulfillment of all the promises of God. We get to look at the perfect law keeper on our behalf, and we get to come and celebrate that we're in Christ. This meal is for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. We practice open communion here at Double Oak Chelsea, which means if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to this table. 
that if you put your faith in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, you are welcome to come and partake in this. And I want to encourage those out there that are in Christ but feel like you're not worthy of this meal today. I was talking with a gentleman one time and we were having communion that day and he said, Clay, I don't feel like I'm good enough to come to the table today. I've had some grave mistakes that I wish I didn't do this week and I can't come to the table. I looked him in his face and I said, you need to come to the table today more than you've ever come to the table. Because when you come to the table with your brokenness and your sinfulness, our Savior meets you here in this moment and literally feeds you his grace to say, I paid for that. I covered that. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to this table. Christ has done all the work for us, and that's what we celebrate at the table is the person and work of Jesus Christ and that we come and we partake of this remembering and celebrating his death and his resurrection until he comes again. When Jesus was at the table with his disciples, he said this in Matthew 26, 26 or 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it and broke it, he gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it that day uh, anew with you in my father's kingdom. So this is what we're coming to do. We're coming to celebrate the gospel. We're coming to celebrate forgiveness. We're coming to be uh, experience his love and his grace in such a tangible, tactile way through the bread and through the juice. So let me pray, and then as you are ready to come, you can come. I want to draw your attention to, we do have a table in the back this time. So we have three tables up front that you can come to, and then we also have a table in the back in which you can participate. So pray with me, and we'll come to his table. Lord, we thank you that you've made the way for this table, that I can't come here through my good works, and I can't come here through my terrible works, that, Lord, you, you've died for both of those things, my self-righteousness and my unrighteousness, and, Lord, I turn to you in faith, believing that that's true, that because I've trusted in your life, death, and resurrection, I'm forgiven, I'm your son, and that you're calling me to the table this morning to experience your grace and your goodness anew. So, Lord, would you meet us in this time and minister your gospel to us through the bread and the juice in Christ's name. Amen.